Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib. I am joined by JP Erico, my co-host, and we have a very, very special guest today, Dr. Chris Kleronimos. And we're really, really excited to have you here to learn about you in your practice and some of the experiences you've had using vagus nerve stimulation in practice so far. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an honor. This has been a great and groundbreaking intervention for a lot of people. So Wonderful. Wonderful. Why don't we start with your story a little bit to understand how you got into family practice and into the realm that you're in, very integrative, very pain management focused. Sure. Thanks. So I actually started as a Navy corpsman, which is the Navy's version of a medic only better. And then, you know, went on to graduate school and started in Essen, moved on to kind of naturopathic stuff and actually reverse engineered it back into the Western, you know, so kind of multiple degrees layered in there to provide this integrated approach. I've actually never practiced true family practice. I've been in pain my entire career. And I was really privileged that my first job was in a hospital comprehensive pain center. And the director at the time, who's actually one of my current partners now, was very open to having a multidisciplinary integrated approach. So we built that for the hospital with acupuncture and nutrition and, you know, all the things that go with it. And we had very successful outcomes and Unfortunately, it's cumbersome for a hospital to maintain that level of integration for a variety of reasons. And so here we are now flying solo. (laughs) Well, thank you for your service. That's first and foremost. But can you give us some insights into what attracted you to the variety of different things that you use and in particular, ultimately coming around to using vagus nerve stimulation in your practice, and I'm assuming with some of your partners. Yeah, absolutely. So I had chronic pain, apparently getting, you know, roughed up, jumping out of things is not great for the body, but it's also just my background lent itself to chronic pain, right? Having additional tools to bring to the table. And so as that developed over time, as I sort of learned from the hospital, like how do we actually weave these things together? It just stuck. And then I was sort of shifted to the complex pain arena, autoimmunity, central syndromes, those sort of things, hypermobility disorders, chronic infections, because Western has, you know, the biomedical model has a limited approach after the sort of semi-acute phases of those conditions. And so even within the pain center, we needed to be able to address that in a cohesive manner. So just over the years landed there and have continued to look for things that can benefit patients, right? There isn't a magic bullet for pain management, right? There isn't a magic wand. So finding tools to bring to the table are important. What I particularly like about the vagal stimulation, which is, you know, relatively new in this arena, you had asked me what I did before. I was having to do it with this sort of modified acupuncture technique that I did where I would get needles close to the area and use a low level stimulation, right? But that required people in the office, you know, and how frequent can you do that versus giving them a tool to have at home 
with regular treatments was vastly different. So that's sort of the evolution of things. What I particularly like is that sort of foundational influence across multiple systems, right? I can address the whole interdisciplinary multi-system dysfunction through this single intervention, right? Yeah, it and is, it layers easily with other things. Yeah, it is a very fundamental tool, as we've talked about on the podcast before. Vagus nerve stimulation seems to have such a broad range of effects on individuals, and that is due to the fact that it's such a fundamental aspect of a human being and, and life in general, the autonomic nervous system and its integration with so many other systems, whether it be immune system, metabolic system, neurotransmitter systems, digestive systems, each one of them, frankly, even reproductive systems, they're all linked to one another through the connectivity up into the brainstem through the vagus nerve. So I appreciate your view on that. It's consistent with ours. <laughs> and, and, and But let me ask you a question. When you have a patient who is suffering with, whether it be, you know, refractory pain problem or a complex pain situation, how do you choose a patient for treatment with, let's say, you know, the variety of different modalities that you work with? And how do you layer on vagus nerve stimulation? Is it the first thing you're suggesting? Is it the third thing you're suggesting? Is it only in these situations? Give us some understanding as to how you select patients. Sure. So I have sort of a broad approach, right? My belief is that you cannot address pain without addressing the multiple systems, right? Complex pain management should not be linear, right? An, an orthopedic or maybe a isolated axial sort of condition can certainly be addressed that way. But when you start getting multi-system involvement, and you just mentioned a bunch of them, which is why I use it, right? We have that neuroendoimmune relationship, that hardwiring between the gut and the brain. And between that, we've now influenced, right? Central pain receptors, peripheral pain receptors, the limbic system, the endocrine system, et cetera, et cetera. And when you have a person that has sort of passed that threshold, whether it be through a kindling effect or a physical trauma that has led to that, or, you know, straw that broke the camel's back over time, sustained stress, history of personal trauma, those sort of things. It's just a intertwined dysfunction, right? That is self-perpetuating. I'm sure most of our functional medicine people would agree with that. And so how do we intervene on that, right? So in terms of layering therapies, I like to have those foundational things in place very early on if I can. Almost every patient, if they have not been assessed for it, goes to sleep medicine. Because once you cross into those sort of central nervous system pain disorders, you can have central apnea, even if you're not at risk for physical apnea, right? You have the you know diet and nutrition, of course, that we want to do. So some degree of activity, right? And then getting them the proper mental health support. So, you know, if you're not the one that invented it, you know, you're kind of four pillars of health, right? You have to address those things or it's a very unstable chair. And so my new approach is sort of adding vagal nerve stimulation early on if we can get them to do it, because I believe it does address the sort of core foundational systems. And, you know, from there, we progress on to sort of what I call the low hanging fruit, right? Things that are easily addressed, 
right? Thyroid, hormones, nutrient status, right? And then on and on, depending on the, let's say, primary pathological presentation or the phenotype that's being presented for a particular system, then we target accordingly, right? Whether it's endocrine versus SIBO or something like that. Let's tackle those four corners, as you said, the four pillars of the dysfunction that these patients are experiencing. One of them is certainly up in the central nervous system and mood and sleep and neurotransmitter imbalance that is associated with depression and chronic stress. So when you think of management of that in patients, you know, the traditional way is to, you know, put them on an SSRI or an SNRI or some other medication that's, you know, supposed to be supportive of the neurotransmitters that you'd like to see in higher concentrations, but it doesn't really go to the root problem of why serotonin isn't being produced or is being reuptaken too much. How do you, and how did you prior to using vagus nerve stimulation, how did you approach sort of treating that underlying problem? Because I think pharmaceuticals alone don't really do the trick. And I, I imagine you would agree with that. I do. And, you know, I'll be honest, it's actually difficult. I tend to be the sort of last ditcher. So by the time people come to me, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would also have that experience, right? They come so late in their overall journey, right? Particularly with pain management that often for the first chunk, I add a pillar, which is medication optimization, right? Their polypharmacy is so high that we don't know what's actually working, what's not working, right? And they've been convinced that they have to take all of these things. And sometimes they do need to take them, right? But often they don't. And, you know, I typically frame it in the way that, well, look, if all of that was working, you would not be sitting in my office telling me your average pain level is a six plus, right? So you got to kind of have to reframe that. So they're typically on a lot of meds, including atypical antidepressants, even antipsychotics, because the Western people start running out of options and do that escalation, right? So if we, we reduce that polypharmacy burden, we get them into counseling, we try and transition to meds that my personal approach is to try and use a medication that sort of overlaps multiple systems, right? So whatever the case may be, Propanolol dresses multiple things, hydroxyzine, multiple things, you know, so that we can reduce that polypharmacy, but still sort of get some symptom control enough to buy us some time to get to the underlying condition. Sometimes that might be, you know, just sort of green allopathy, swapping a medication for an herb or a supplement. And sometimes it might be a fully natural approach. One of the naturopaths in my office has sort of a special interest in what we say is naturopathic mental health support. And in conjunction with our psychologists, we, you know, take that neurotransmitter approach, et cetera. Yeah. One of the things that we've encountered just within the last couple of interviews we've done is sort of a recognition that really pain of any kind is associated with inflammation. And we know that social stress and chronic stress and even depression symptoms can be triggered by inflammation. And it's sort of a bi-directional thing that you have 
inflammation causing neurotransmitter imbalance and neurotransmitter imbalance and, and symptoms of stress and depression can lead to inflammation. So when you address the polypharmacy, I would imagine that introduction of whether it be dietary changes or medication, or in the case of now neuromodulation, the goal is always to reduce whatever inflammation is present in the body. Because, you know, as you said, one of the pillars that you're talking about here includes not only the mental health, but also inflammation. So, you know, what percentage of your patients' responses are derived from modulation of inflammation and thinking about it broadly. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think we have to air quote inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly all pain has an inflammatory component, but I don't think we often use inflammation in a specific enough way, right? We think about it as like, Cox inhibition or something like that, right? We give fish oils and turmeric and, right? And those things are great, right? Of course, you know, when you have arthritis or axial pain or those kind of things where we can target peripheral receptors, reduce true inflammatory burden in those Cox pathways or those, you know, more common where we're seeing ESRs elevated and those kind of things, true inflammatory response. That's a little different than I think when we're talking about sort of microglial activation in the brain triggering NMDA reception, right? That's a different kind of pathway and inflammation, which is why, well, you can correct me if I'm totally wrong. It's why I think the cholinergic inflammatory pathway is so important because it hits those three systems. And we're not really measuring that. I think you spoke about it in a podcast not too long ago that you know, we can't really measure the cytokines in the same way for things like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, et cetera. Yes, there's research studies that are coming out, like the FMA test that's being run out of University of Chicago, where they're looking at those kind of distinct cytokine patterns. And there's obviously some specialized functional medicine tests that do that. But I don't think we, that's not really ready for prime time. I think we're still in the we have to look at it as a different inflammation, air quote, right? <laughs> I think that's right. That the traditional understanding of current inflammation with concomitant cytokine expression, and really that's sort of the end of it, is very limited. And what we're talking about when we think about inflammation more broadly, as I sort of said, you know, think about it in the more broad sense of the consequences of inflammation that may have occurred in the past or chronic stress that or you know other triggers of inflammation in the past that were sufficiently strong or prolonged enough that they caused long-term priming or changes in the immune cells for example priming of microglial cells so we talk about you know, fibromyalgia, you know, it's 90% of fibromyalgia patients have some history of trauma, whether it be emotional, yes. sexual, physical trauma in their childhood. What did that do to them? What effects did that have on their microglial cells? They may not be expressing, you know, high levels of C-reactive protein in their bloodstream, or, you know, if you do a, a cytokine panel, you're not going to see high levels of TNF-alpha, but that doesn't mean that the consequences of inflammation aren't present 
inside those immune cells that are so important for modulating and controlling how the brain's functioning. And I think that's where vagus nerve stimulation, and as you mentioned, the cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway is a much broader treatment than simply managing current inflammation. It's great for lowering TNF-alpha levels and IL-1 levels and changing how microglial cells are behaving if they're in an inflamed state, but what effect is it having on microglial cells that aren't necessarily currently in an inflamed state, but are hyper-prone to being in an inflamed state and as a result aren't functioning normally? I liken it to the analogy we used just a couple of weeks ago on the podcast of a farmer. You know, the farmer is running his farm, it's functioning well, he's feeding the community, et cetera. And, and the analogy is he's the microglial cell. And there's a battle that's going on in his home, you know, state, and he has to leave and join the battle. If he comes back quickly, he can run the farm again. If he comes back and it's been too long, he's got to, you know, catch the livestock again. He's got to replant. He's got to get sure. everything running again. Hopefully he can. But sometimes he comes back and he's been gone so long and he's seen so much that he has PTSD himself. And the yeah. farm is never right again. The farm never really works the way it was supposed to. And it's just dysfunctional. And the consequences of that may look like he's still off fighting in that the farm isn't producing the way it should. But he is back. And everybody looks and says, the battle's over. He's back here. Why isn't he making the food the way we need it to? It's because he's not functioning well. And I think that the microglial cell in the analogy is still the primary player in fibromyalgia. It isn't so easy to see. I think one place to look might be in the mitochondria, in mitochondrial dysfunction, because I think that is a long-term change that may be occurring in these cells that leads to the priming and leads to the long-term dysfunction. And the good news is, the good news in that situation is that there is the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on mitochondria itself and or themselves. And there is a change in mitochondrial function in those cells. And it's being looked at and it's cutting edge research right now. But that change is still possible even after extensive priming. Yeah. I mean, you hit on a lot of things that is exactly why I utilize this device, right? Actually, my wife's a psychologist and her doctoral thesis was on trauma as a predictor in fibromyalgia. And this does not mean people are crazy, which I always try to point out. It means that there was actually a physical, neurological change in their brain from this, which is, you know, very different than this is completely you know, you're just neurotic, right? But it's essentially almost diagnostic, right? Or at least very predictive. And that's consistent with the literature, right? An eight-time association, which is crazy high in a first-degree relative, given that we think, you know, three is high in rheumatoid, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, all the things you just mentioned, that priming, I think when those cells get activated and they trigger those NMDA receptors, now you have this like glutamate excitation, and, you know, all the other neurotransmitter dysfunction, that signals going down, right, to the GI tract, and then that's influencing the neurotransmitters. And then for whatever reason, whether it's the motility aspect or the inflammatory aspect or the oxidative stress, 
that's influencing the mitochondria, right? We alter the microbiome and then that goes to the back to serotonin production and then, right? And you become this circle of dysfunction that is hard to intervene on, right? We can treat SIBO and this is a treatment I utilize for SIBO. I'm a big proponent of it. That's what I originally developed the sort of acupuncture approach for, but you know, it has to be disrupted or you're not going to correct it. And I think that's where the layering comes in, right? We can treat SIBO, adding in vagal stimulation, adding in cognitive behavioral therapy to reinforce this, adding in whatever the case may be. And I have a suspicion that what you were talking about, the early on traumas, right, you know, led to that neuroplastic change in a negative way right? But you have essentially activated the limbic system and you have this sort of ongoing fear response. And well, you can tell me if I'm true, but I think that it disrupts the whole circadian process and disrupts, you know, neural pruning. And then, you know, that of course further leads to more dysfunction in this entire circle, as well as you know, the sort of glymphatics, which goes back to the inflammation, right? You're never in a restorative sleep. You never, your brain doesn't detox. You, then you have inflammation, then, right? And it's just this feed forward. You're right? absolutely right. And that's why I think, you know, from my perspective, vagus nerve stimulation is so potent because it has the ability to address several, if not most of the various different feed forward steps that are making it impossible to get out of this loop of inflammation, neurotransmitter imbalance, hyperexcitation, stress, back to inflammation, down to the gut, causing, you know, leaky gut syndrome, causing microbiome, you know, dysbiosis, and all of it feeding back through the autonomic nervous system with a heightened level of, as you said, vigilance and sympathetic activation, which leads to a higher level of pro-inflammatory monocytes being produced in the bone marrow. So you end up with, you know, frankly, a lot of other things that are typically considered, you know, non-psychiatric in their nature, things like atherosclerosis, metabolic disease, things like that, that are more likely to occur as a result of being in this sympathetically overdriven state, which really all has its basis back in that early childhood trauma where neurodevelopment was impacted and an ongoing, this, you know, I get focused around brain fog because brain fog yeah. is such a, and cognitive dysfunction because I don't think it's called brain fog when you talk about it in the context of depression or metabolic disease or even cancer. You don't talk about it as brain fog, but it really is that same cognitive dysfunction that's occurring in the hippocampus with ongoing neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. And you talked about this impaired pruning that's taking place. So you can't remember things, you can't store new memories, you can't learn, et cetera, because of that inflammatory state. And I'm again, using air quotes around inflammatory because it's, right. it's this heightened level of microglial dysfunction or microgliosis that's taking place the ability of vagus nerve stimulation to take those microglial cells and move them back into a more, and I hate using the term M2-like, but we'll use it, getting it back into that homeostatic housekeeping task focus is really 
the ticket and it, it has the ability to break the cycle all the way around. Because again, if you have the ability to, you know, have your neurotransmitters being produced in the right levels, you're not suffering with excitotoxicity, which you referred to with, you know, AMDA receptor upregulation. Side by side with that, you get GABA receptor downregulation. So as a result, right. you know, you're not only making glutamate, you know, more powerful by upregulating those receptors, you're downregulating the GABA receptors, which are there to protect you from that over and hyperexcitation. So all of that ties back to microglial function, inflammation, and that vigilant state. You see it in concussion. You see it in, I mean, I'm sure you've deal with patients who have had traumatic brain injuries and concussions because chronic pain is a big consequence of that. Right. And that's where you see the vagal nerve in the endocrine and HPA access issues, right? So for whatever reason, you know, we know as soon as you have a TBI, your hormones crash, right? Like your growth hormones essentially gone within a couple of days, right? And it takes a long time to recover if it recovers, depending on severity. So that whole HPA influence is necessary, right? And this is, I think, where it's clinically a problem. Well, it's where we can intervene with layered treatments with things like LDN or low-dose rampamycin, because what you're talking about, that sort of systemic influence ultimately leads to oxidative stress, which impairs the mitochondria, which worsens the brain fog, right? Air quoted brain fog. But it also creates a problem, right? Patients this far along, at least typically what I see, all those systems are bad. So I have to sort of decide what is my primary pain target here, right? Is it strictly neurological? Is it immune? Is it endo? Where is my main target of dysfunction? function, right? If they have dysbiosis with, let's say, an actual overt infection versus sort of opportunistic overgrowth or no growth, that signal is very different, right? In the immune sort of target, and you're not going to ultimately fix it unless we get rid of the infection first. Alternately, neurologically, if the target is limbic system sympathetic tone, lack of heart rate variability, and those sort of things, then that's different. And you can layer in with like neurochiropractic brain rehab and, you know, non-pharmacological versus the other, right? And I like pairing it with things, like I said, naltrexone or low-dose rampamycin, neuro rehab, biofeedback, obviously cognitive behavioral therapy is a fairly large component to our pain practice, but any path that I can intervene at regard outside of my primary target, I try to do, right? So the pillars, the core things, the low hanging fruit, we pick our primary target and then support the rest while we're doing it. We might be doing, I think that there's a lot of, which we haven't touched on, but something going on with the extracellular matrix and the fascia and pH changes. And fascial changes we know are pretty heavily involved in these central pain disorders. And I don't even mean structurally like trigger points. I'm talking about the like hyaluronic acid viscosity and cytokine pooling that occurs. You know, since those A7 receptors are sort of everywhere, 
can we influence that, right? So I'll put them on a pulsed electromagnetic field mat, right? Or near far infrared while they're doing the gamma core or whatever, transcutaneous vagal stimulation, those kind of things. We try to layer them together while we're addressing the primary because it's both gives us a lot of opportunity, but it also presents a lot of barriers, right? So because we'll, compliance we'll, becomes a big issue. So really interesting target there. Sorry, if I could just jump in. You mentioned fascia and obviously fascia is going to play a major role. And I think it's very clearly overlooked by most medical practitioners, the role of fascia. But you mentioned it, and I want to just bring up that there are tissue resident macrophages in the serosa, in that fascial tissue as well. And those are obviously going to have the same inputs that are required. And so you can imagine those peritoneal and pleural macrophages that are present in the fascia that are also there making sure that the fascia laying down and maintenance is at a good level. That's going to be affected when there is kind of this overall arching inflammatory reaction that is occurring. And so we're likely affecting fascial connections and fascial tissue morphology when these particular macrophages are affected. So I just want to bring that up as well. Yeah. And there's innervation from the autonomic nervous system into the fascia to regulate the yeah. activity of those tissue resident macrophages that you were talking about. So yeah, fascia is definitely something that plays a much more prominent role than I think it's given credit to. And I think it's coming into its own. I think there's a fair amount of research that's starting to pick up around the role of fascia in pain management, in stress management, even within the field of headache and migraine, it's becoming a target. Where I was going to go was we've been talking a lot about the science, and I'm sure that for those people out there who are like me, this has been you know like a field day. But let's dig into some of the clinical side of things and your actual experiences, because it sounds to me, and I'll just say this is sort of the final parting shot about it. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that with respect to all of the various pillars, associated with managing pain across really most, if not all of the different reasons why people come to you with their pain conditions, that modulating the autonomic nervous system with vagus nerve stimulation is just a positive baseline therapy that may in and of itself be very effective, but it may require additional and usually does require additional things. So Let's talk about like actual cases that you've had or experiences that you want to share with the audience, because I, I know that's always a big popular thing. Yeah, sure. I would say overall, I get vastly positive feedback overall. And I agree 100% with what you said. It's essentially my fifth pillar now because of that. And, you know, it's no different than, right, using vagal stimulation or not in terms of compliance, to me is equivalent of diet, right? Not everybody's going to get cured with it, but probably very few are going to be cured without it, right? Yep. So it's this sort of foundational, which you've said lots of times, that if we're not doing it, and it's such a low risk of harm, right? There's like what we're talking, it, does, it reduces polypharmacy, broad influence, easy to use. It's Compliance is, well, should be relatively easy. The patient has control. They have dosing ranges. Like this should be not just foundational medically, but foundational treatment approach strategy wise, right? As one of those pillars, because 
again, why not? What's the worst thing? Even if let's say nothing I did worked, what's the worst thing that's happening, right? I would be hard pressed to think that whether we get the symptom relief we're targeting or not, I would guarantee we're getting some physiological change. Yes, and right. generally a positive one. So, so right. Okay. You know, I think I just had a really interesting case that was one of my, air quoting, fibromyalgia patients that had done great, really, really good for a long time. I barely saw her after we stabilized her. You know, she came in periodically for some maintenance and was on no, essentially no medications. Very compliant person, obviously, with all the multidisciplinary things. Well, there was an incident. She had a very poor response to a COVID booster and developed mast cell activation and neurological dysfunction, dysautonomia. It cranked up her chronic fatigue symptoms and brain. Her central pain myalgia cranked up pretty much as if I had never seen her or treated her. And then some, right? Markedly worse. And then we were able to get the ma the mast cell stuff under control, actually a little bit ahead of the vagal stem. And I could not find anything wrong with this person. Literally every possible test, right? And And I tell people when we have to do that, you know, like, look, we're going hunting right now because what should have worked didn't. We got to do a little deeper dive. And I typically try to do most things with regular standard labs and with the exception of like functional GI testing. But in her case, nothing was happening and it progressed to essentially cyclic vomiting syndrome and normal motility testing, normal pH testing, normal pH testing, except on endoscopy, massive gastritis with bleeding ulcers. So, I mean, she got hospitalized for the abdominal pain after all these testings that were <laughs> negative, right? And then they found it. So this got worse and worse and worse. Nothing was happening in terms of we couldn't move the needle at all until the vagal stimulation. And I'm not going to say it cured it for sure, but it reduced it 60 to 70 percent. I mean, she was vomiting every or dry heaving, right? Every you know, 15 to 30 minutes, couldn't tolerate any food or liquid was getting, I mean, I was having to put in hydration IVs regularly, all the things. And this, she uses it sort of on a set schedule, carries it around with her. She has sort of her base treatment that works for her. You know, she does it before she gets out of bed, after the shower, before leaving the house, right? And she has the sequence and then if she's flaring, she'll use it more. And it has made a significant difference in the vomiting. The nausea was still a problem in the sense that it was being controlled until she ate or drank something. And then it was that stimulus was triggering it and the vagal stim wasn't always enough to override that, even with that reduction. And so we had to add some things to calm that down, but then that control of the symptoms allowed her to sort of utilize the mechanism more and do influence. And so she is trending better in terms of fatigue, pain, and nausea and vomiting. So, and what we eventually found was a mycotoxicosis, but which we're addressing. But of course, that's 
now a chicken in the egg scenario because I'm killing a systemic infection that's triggering <laughs> these other symptoms. But regardless, if you think about it without the vagal stim, would she even be able to tolerate the treatment at all? Yeah. Right. And then what do you do? I think that's what happens to a lot of patients that, right? How many times do we see it? I've tried every drug. I didn't tolerate it. I'm allergic to all the drugs, air quoting, allergic, right? Yeah. It's more that their systems can't take it, that's exactly. right? For whatever reason, whether it's a response to infection or just poor vagal tone or whatever, if nothing else, the ability to get people it through treatments is a miracle, Right. It's huge because well, without treating people, we can't fix them. As a person who's, you know, was involved in developing the technology, it's extremely gratifying to hear a story like that where there's somebody out there that I've never met that is gaining benefit from something that I, I worked on. That that just feels really good. I know I could jump in there for a yeah, second. Sure. It's obviously a phenomenal story there that you were even able to get her 60, 70% better with something relatively simple that was added into our daily protocol. And I'm all for a holistic approach. Nobody's yelling from the rooftops that this is the monotherapy that's going to make everybody better from everything. But what I like to call it from my clinical perspective is the plateau buster. You hit a plateau because you're trying to work on those root causes and the therapies, your body is just truly unable to handle even the therapies, right? And the medication or the herbs or whatever, even the acupuncture in some cases, it's too much for the body to handle. The patient can't take it. And this is where we can essentially shift that state from that sympathetic towards a parasympathetic state, towards a healing state, get rid of that priming that's occurring in those innate immune cells, in those tissue resident macrophages, and push them towards that more parasympathetic housekeeping state, which is where then the symptoms are able to come down to a level where you can then approach therapy from an herbal or medical or other perspective overall, and the body can actually handle it. This is, for me, vagus nerve stem is that plateau buster that we can get through and actually work on the root cause more effectively because the body is primed to do so. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I like to riff on just for a second. I think that when you have your innate immune system and specifically tissue resident macrophages and recruited macrophages in that pro-inflammatory hypervigilant state, you are, it's sort of like a, you're wading through molasses trying to treat the problems because you're fighting against the patient's own innate immune system. And frankly, also the autonomic nervous system in that sympathetic overdrive, trying to treat them with everything from cognitive behavioral therapy to diet changes to exercise to you know to polypharmacy in some cases and you're fighting against the system once you layer on vagus nerve stimulation and i freely say i don't think it cures anything i think what it does is it creates an environment in which you're no longer fighting against yourself you're fighting with yourself you've recruited those those all important macrophages back on your side. And, you know, there's still damage there. There's still dysfunction. There's still things that need to be treated, but you're no longer fighting against the most powerful force in the body, which is the innate immune system and the autonomic nervous system when they're partnered together. I mean, that's a system, those two systems together that can kill you inside 30 seconds. 
I mean, it literally has the ability to take your life inside a minute. And yet when you have it on your side, it's the most important thing from everything from, you know, depression to cancer. You know, the, one of the greatest breakthroughs of the last decade or so has been, you know, immunotherapies, you know, Keytruda and Optivo and these checkpoint inhibitors that are there basically because, and are being used because we recognize that the immune system is our most powerful ally in treating everything. And you just got to get it on your side. And that's what I think vagus nerve stimulation does. I think it gets your body and your systems on your side in terms of trying to get you healthier again. That's why I think of it as a wellness product more than a therapy. You know, it's not curing anything. It's making, it's keeping you in the healthiest state so that you can get healthy. Yeah, I love that description because, you know, if the faucet's on and continually fills the cup, we can poke as many holes in that cup as we want. It's going to keep filling up, right? So, you know, by poking holes in the cup in that multi-system approach while also turning off the faucet, hypothetically, we should be able to move that needle, right? And I think I would even take it a step further than you just went, maybe not cure, but I think the ability for it to address that sympathetic state, that limbic system activation improves the ability of people to be compliant, right? And ultimately, we need them to be compliant because if they leave my office and Chris does all this fancy stuff and here's, you know, $500 in cell signaling peptides and XYZ, and then they leave my office and drive to McDonald's, right? And then go home, light up a cigarette and lock themselves in with no social contact. It's a lost cause, right? So, and I do actually have a patient that has a lot of trauma, Ehlers-Danlos case with tethered cord. And so we've been working on obviously lots and lots of systems from all perspectives and the anxiety and fear and even motivation might be the wrong word, but the desire to be more social, let's say, has radically improved with the vagal stimulation. And I see the difference. At this point, it's not even about, okay, tell me your average pain level this week. What's your fatigue level, right? It's the visual of this patient who's coming in smiling now, same pain level, right? But the perception and the activation and the fear of it is all different. And that's huge, right? So it's it been to, yeah, a plateau buster, right, that you just said. I think it goes to, and I was going to ask you about this with respect to the cognitive behavioral therapy that you employ as well. I've always looked at it from the standpoint of it, when you have a trauma and you have some level of PTSD, you have to cognitively process through that in order to get past it. But it's very difficult to do that when the autonomic nervous system is being activated. You know, if you're walking down the street and every time you see the color, you know, fire engine red, you uncontrollably break down in tears and are having a panic attack. Well, you're never going to be able to actually cognitively process through that because you're going to be in fight or flight or freeze mode all the way through any attempt to approach that. If you can suppress that response, so that the brain can still function and you can still cognitively process through things, 
you're able to make that behavioral therapy so much better, so much more effective. And so I think you're right that compliance is, you know, just in that setting, compliance is so much easier for the patient to adhere to therapy or to believe in therapy and to access the benefits of just simply believing that it works is so right. much better when you're getting some benefit right up front. And then maybe that's where you were going is if I give the patient 50 to 60% benefit with a therapy that's so easy and so low risk and so, so rapid in its benefit, then I've sort of co-opted that patient, not just their immune system and their autonomic nervous system, but I've co-opted them consciously and with their emotions to believe that they can get better. And by doing that, then they'll be more, you know, more compliant, more willing to stick through the battle that they have to go through. Sure. And, you know, I, I want to be clear that I don't think that non-compliance is always about desire and motivation, right? I mean, certainly in some cases, people just want a magic bullet, right? That we don't have. But I think often it is that trauma, fear, limbic activation, et cetera, and because traumas are... I don't care how cognitively adapt you are, right? These are involuntary autonomic responses. And I can, I'll give a personal example. I was in a helicopter crash when I was in the service and luckily nobody was killed or anything. But years later, and I have a complete physiological response to heights and airplanes during turbulence. I still fly, right? And I can get through it but it is a completely involuntary response. And it cognitively, I know this is ridiculous and actually kind of bugs me because I used to parachute and mountain climb and right. And all these things. And now I'm like, Oh my God, we're very high. Right? <laughs> it's completely involuntary, right? Your brain changed. My brain changed. Right. Or maybe I'm getting old. One of the two, but you know, that's a perfect example. Like, and if it's really I mean, that's isolated. How often am I, flying how often am i right standing on the ledge of something but if your air quoted trigger or your cognitive fear is something like you said that you're seeing daily like how do you possibly get past that right without a lot of help and i think people get shuffled off to the side right oh they're neurotic oh they're anxiety right now oh, here's your benzo here right and Right. But there's they're not actually intervening because you will never turn that faucet off. Right. And putting that. them so, on a medication like a benzo or something like that to get them quieted down also takes away their ability to process through what they need to process through. I would be fascinated to hear, you know, maybe check back in a few months after you've had the opportunity to take a flight or two, whether or not if you use the therapy, whether or not you might find that, hey, during periods of turbulence on the flight my autonomic nervous system response was muted and it wasn't quite so challenging for me during those moments of bumpy air. You know, it would be interesting because I, I know I've not personally experienced it, but I've, other members of my family have, have used it for flight anxiety and other things like that. And it's been pretty remarkable in how well it eliminates that fear, eliminates that anxiety. So be interesting to see if it if yeah it i have a flight coming up so it'll be in my pocket you know sounds good just want to finish up with one last question for you if that's okay and that is that you've been using this therapy with your patients for a few months now what percentage of patients would you say are 
positively responding. You mentioned that it was quite a lot. If you could put a basic sort of subjective number on it. Nine out of 10, for sure, to some degree. The solidly, solidly better than 50%, like, are sending me texts like, this is a miracle, I need a refill, whatever the case may be. Most people get some benefit. What's hard to track, I think, clinically is how often, I mean, I can say, are you using it consistently? Oh, yeah, I am. But what does that mean? Yeah. And you have to dig into that because dose time duration, right? Where are they in that process? But overall, I would say, you know, eight, nine out of 10, very positive response. And I think earlier before we were recording, we were talking about some of the reasons maybe some of the others don't. And it goes back to that inability to tolerate therapies, right? And people, you know, it is a stimulation, right? We feel it. And I think it's hard for people to utilize a device if they're not necessarily feeling it, but taking it to the point of feeling it might be too much for them. So let me ask you, I think it would be beneficial and this maybe is, you know, a little beyond the scope of the discussion, but do you think it would be beneficial in that vein if you had something where in the office you could use it and then show them, whether it be through heart rate variability or some blood test that you could do before and after that would show the patient saying, listen, I realize that this, I'm asking you to do something. You may not understand why I'm asking you to do it. You may not you know, I may not have the time to explain all the science behind what's happening inside you when we do it, but here's something objective that I can show you. Your heart rate variability was here, really low. Your cardiac vagal tone was really low. We did this and it went up. And we know, and we've talked about this before, that when your heart rate variability is low, you're at risk for high levels of inflammation, your cardiac risk, you're stressed, all that kind of stuff. Now I'm showing you that, yeah, the reason why you're feeling it in your neck and your shoulders being more relaxed is showing up here on this measurable metric that I can show you of heart rate variability or some other tool. Do you think that would be beneficial to get that other group more using, you know, using it more compliant? I do. I think that, you know, anything objective is good for patients especially when there's an out-of-pocket cost to it, right? Not These devices aren't always covered, for the most part not, with few exceptions. So, you know, objective measures are pretty validating for people. And I would, especially in these very sensitive patients where I'm saying, hold this against your neck and they feel nothing because the set is so low, right, that if they could still see the response, I think that that would be valuable because that's the hard thing to ask of somebody, right? Like, hey, just hold this thing there. They feel nothing physically at the moment. And so by having something to validate that it is physiologically having an effect would be would be great. Yeah, it's important. It's important in the case of the device you're talking about to get the amplitude up to the point where it is actually stimulating the nerve fibers, there is a depolarization threshold you have to get over. So if they're holding it there and they're not feeling anything, it may be tolerable to them, but I don't know that it's necessarily having a therapeutic, it wouldn't be having a therapeutic benefit. They're going to have to get it to the point where they're feeling it 
at a significant level. I mean, we always talk about the fact that, you know, you want to activate the platysma muscle in order to get the stimulation effect. So there's certainly placebo effect about holding something there and sitting quietly for two minutes, but get up to the level where you're actually on an fMRI or on an EEG or something showing that the vagus nerve is being activated. It needs to be at a level that's, you know, what your other patients are using. Sure. So that's really interesting. I didn't really have it in my head that way, which I guess is why you're the scientist. I sort of had framed it in my head as sort of like exercise, right? You don't necessarily have to be sore at first right. to, to get any benefit, right? So that's sort of how I had it in my head. But I mean, even if we could get, you know, there's still that piece of, you know, little is good or is better, right? So right. If we could show them that objective measure, regardless of how intense it is, that would be good. Yeah. No, I think, as I said, there's benefit associated with even just sitting quietly for two minutes and then going through the effort. But right, right. I think of it like when you hit a light switch, when you walk into a room, I mean, you can hit the light switch, but unless the switch actually moves to the other setting, the lights aren't going to turn on. So you have to have it at a level where you're activating the, you know, the fibers that are being targeted. And that comes with amplitude. And so right. to be really effective, you need to be feeling it. I think this is a perfect place to kind of call our conversation, respect your time. Dr. Claremontis, it's an absolute honor to have had you on the podcast. We will absolutely follow up with you in a few more months, see how things are going. If you have any cool clinical stories later on and people that were able to bust through that plateau again, would be absolutely wonderful to hear all about. But again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise and your experience using vagus nerve stimulation. Thank you so much. It was an honor. I really enjoyed it. I hope there was some helpful info in there. Absolutely. And for everybody who's listening, please share this with anybody who you think could utilize this information to help upgrade their health, get them to the next level and, you know, experience upgraded health. Have a wonderful day and we'll catch you on the next one. 